Hello, everyone. Welcome to Church Coffee, Christianity, Conservatism, and Culture. Today, we'll be talking about the Jewish Annotated New Testament with Dr. Mark Brettler and Dr. Amy Jill Levine. Dr. Mark Brettler is the Bernice and Morton Lerner Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Duke University. He is also the co-author of The Bible and the Believer, How to Read the Bible Critically and Religiously, and the co-founder of Fora.com. Dr. Amy Jill Levine is the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace and also the University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies Emerita, Mary Jane Worthen, Professor of New Study, Professor of Jewish Studies Emerita, and Professor of New Testament Studies Emerita at Vanderbilt University. Both of you, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And first, easy, easy, quick intro question for you both. How do you take your coffee or any type of other caffeinated beverage? Strong mm. black caffeinated um fully leaded fully leaded caffeinated uh, it's definitely caffeinated either espresso or cappuccino you have a favorite no coffee shop no your, sugar no sugar do you have a I love it straight black uh do you have a favorite coffee shop in your area or favorite go-to coffee that you guys enjoy um I, I go to the grocery store and buy what's on sale yeah i'm, I'm an espresso person and i have an espresso uh, both at home and in my office um, what, so what's, uh, we'll start with Amy Gill first, uh, what's your story and how did you come to where you are in life? My story, my goodness, I'm, I'm a, a Jew who studies the new Testament with a focus on historical Jesus and gospels and acts. Although I wander into Paul every once in a while. Um, I'm very interested in Jewish Christian relations and I'm very tired of Christians bearing false witness against Jews, which includes the historical context in which Jesus and Paul lived. And I'm tired of Jews bearing false witness against Christians, which results from ignorance of what the New Testament says and how the church has interpreted over time. And Mark, what's your story? Well, my story is very different than AJ's story. Uh, like her, I am Jewish. I brought up in a traditional Jewish home, my main field of study is the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, Tanakh. And maybe we'll get into this later. Pick your term for whatever you want to call this rather uh, long collection of about a thousand years worth of works. And I really did concentrate most of my work primarily on the Hebrew Bible and its interpretation until I did the Jewish annotated New Testament. So, and that's how I really met AJ and we've been working together. So I'm more of an accidental New Testament scholar, while she is a very intentional New Testament scholar. I, I mean, I should say something about that, too. So Mark teaches at Duke. I have my MA and PhD from Duke. And when I got to graduate school in the New Testament program, the people running the program at the time or people running the divinity school um, would not allow me to teach in the divinity school uh, because I'm a Jew and I do New Testament. So the, they thought, you know, like the only people who could teach New Testament would be Christians. Um, but I had a very generous fellowship, but it required me to do some teaching. So the then dean of the divinity school said through my advisor, you know, let her do Old Testament. And when I said, I don't do Old Testament, the response was, you do now. So I wound up doing the full PhD course rotation for Old Testament, just so I would know what I was doing in the classroom. Uh, and then when the dean died, which was not my fault, the following year, I got into the New Testament classroom under the new dean. 
So I actually work in both testaments. Uh, it, it, it was uh, it was difficult at first when I was told you can't teach the you can't teach New Testament, but it wound up being a very good thing because I gained an expertise in both. Excellent. Um, and what uh, branch of Judaism do you guys both subscribe to, practice, whatever verb we want to use, and um, maybe give a sentence or two on understanding for our, for our listeners? I go to an Orthodox synagogue and I don't practice at all. Yeah, I don't like discussions of branches of Judaism. I mean, most people do not realize that these only developed over the last couple of hundred years. Uh, I'm a more or less a traditional practicing Jew. Thanks. All right. First, let's get into the nitty gritty. Um, what guy, what drew you guys to this project? Obviously, um, maybe Amy Joe a little bit. It sounds like Mark kind of fell into it, but uh, like yeah. What, well, actually, what, let, let what, me start. Let me start sure. with this one, if that's okay. Uh, so this project is sort of accidentally my idea. So let me let me talk about that. I've been involved with editing for Oxford University Press Bibles for about 30 odd years. I mean, it started when a remarkable man who's still working as the executive Bible editor at Oxford, Donald Krauss contacted me for an edition of the new Oxford Annotated Bible, where he was concerned that the annotations in that Bible way too often, and once was way too often, talked about the distinction between the Old Testament, to use the term used in the new Oxford Annotated Bible, especially then, was a book of law, and the New Testament was a book of love and grace. So my job, when I was initially hired to be an associate editor for that, was to make sure that that distinction is totally eradicated. I did my best, and now I'm working again on a new edition of that particular volume. So once that happened, I realized that I liked to do it. I liked editing Bibles. And then Oxford University Press had the idea of doing the Jewish Study Bible, they were kind enough to approach me uh, as a co-editor with Adele Berlin Emerita University of Maryland for that particular project, uh, which I enjoyed very much. And I enjoyed it so much that it's almost a throwaway line, and I still don't know if I said this seriously or as a joke to Don, uh, I think I'd like to do a follow-up. Why don't we do something similar for the New Testament? And, and I said that and totally forgot about it. And about a year later, Don came back to me and said, okay, I discussed it with the important people in Oxford, and they think it's a really good idea. Uh, how would you like to co-edit it? And obviously, you need to co-edit it with someone whose expertise you know, supplements and complements yours. So if you're going to do a Jewish annotated New Testament, at least from my perspective, a good part of that needs to be how the New Testament picks up on the Tanakh, how it is both similar to and dissimilar from the Tanakh. So that clearly is my area. I also have done a lot of work in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are contemporaneous with a lot with sections of the New Testament. I know rabbinic literature pretty well. So I really had all of the material around the New Testament uh, in my wheelhouse, everything but the New Testament itself. And therefore, it became very important to find a significant scholar whose main area was the New Testament. So there's there's a Jewish word, a shidduch, a match. And it's usually for a marriage match. But Don is the person who shidduched me with AJ. And that's how this project really got started. 
Excellent. And then so I guess Mark the and John se spoke second part to, to Amy, Amy Jill. Um, yes, Mark and Don spoke to me about this, and I thought, what a brilliant idea. Now we have to find a bunch of Jews um, who can annotate the New Testament as well as to provide back essays on things like uh, how did Jews understand the law uh, or Jewish practice in the Second Temple period, the time of Jesus? Um, uh, what was Jewish family life like? Um, how have Jews looked at Jesus over time um, in rabbinic literature and medieval stuff in, in modernism? Um, and and so on. And we wrote to a bunch of people who were experts in the field, and the response was overwhelmingly positive. So the first edition of the Jewish Annotated came out in 2011, and then they decided to do a second edition. It was re substantially revised and expanded, uh, and that came out in 2017. And now we're working on an edition number three. We're going to take a quick break and have a word from a sponsor. Shenandoah Coffee Roasters has been a staple of Charlottesville since 1993. They offer over 25 varieties of specialty, boutique, and gourmet coffee using only the finest Arabia coffee from all over the world. Coffee is their passion and they painstakingly search out the best coffee available. Nothing is taken for granted as they continually strive to provide the best coffee they possibly can. They roast all their coffees to order based on the needs of their espresso bar, ensuring that only the freshest and highest quality coffee leaves their roasting house. Grab a cup at any of their three locations, Main Restaurant Preston, On the Corner, or on Ivy Road or order a bag online at shenandoahjoe.com. Excellent. Well, I have edition number two, uh, so I look forward to buying a, a new one. Hopefully. Good, and let's hope everybody listening to you feels the same way. Yeah, I have. <laughs> I know two, I, two people have bought it based off my recommendations. So, um, <clears throat> Mark, uh, specifically, how did, how did like your expertise in editing the Oxford and also the Jewish um, Study Bible, what, what similarities and differences for those uh, um, projects helped you with this project? The projects are, the projects are really incredibly similar. Uh, these are incredibly difficult editorial projects. Um, often in academia, we speak of herding cats. I mean, these, these really are wild cats. But before, and this AJ just alluded to this, where you could herd the cats, we had to find the cats. And I really second what AJ said, that uh, there really was a tremendous excitement, this idea. And so it was very, very easy to get the cats to come. Uh, getting all the cats to do the work at exactly the right time. Uh, I don't know if it's an ethnic thing or not, but at least many Jews seem to be able to say something in a hundred words that could be said in 10 words. Annotate, this, is a, this is an annotated Bible. It's not a Bible with commentary. And especially because it was the first time there wasn't a clear model of that. So our editorial hand, I think, had to be stronger in some cases here than it was in some of the other volumes for which there was a clear model. But it was not really fundamentally different. Uh, one way in which I'd say it was at least significantly different, and AJ, correct me if I have the proportions wrong, you know, the New Testament is about a quarter to a third the size of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, therefore, when we did the Jewish Annotated New Testament, I'm sorry, when we did the Jewish Study Bible, we did not have a lot of room for many essays. And we did our best, but there's actually a physical limit the number of pages such a book can have. And because the Hebrew Bible itself is so large, 
we could not do a lot of essays. So one significant difference is that we thought hard and we thought hard again for the second edition and we'll still have more and different essays for the third edition about the case of the essays because the book really does have space. And it's also a little different because we knew that actually there, there were two audiences that we had for this book. Now, one audience were Jews who previously were reluctant to read the New Testament. And so they somehow needed to be convinced and cajoled to read it, which was not the case for the Jewish study Bible. And similarly, uh, a Christian audience, many of whom did not realize that understanding Judaism uh, is very important, or I'd even say crucial, for understanding almost all of the New Testament. And they needed to be cajoled to realize that. So I think there was a little more cajoling involved and convincing involved in the tone that we use in some of the material in this particular volume. Thank you. Um, AJ, you did the annotations for the Gospel of Luke, is that correct? I did. Yeah. What um, what drew you to doing the annotations there? Did Mark just assign? Um, yeah. Oh, no. Um, I did the annotations for the Gospel of Luke because we had asked a major scholar to do it, and the scholar didn't deliver and didn't deliver and didn't deliver. Um, and then finally, when something came in, it was not usable. So we were up on a deadline. Um, I had done a commentary on the Gospel of Luke with Ben Witherington III, who was a really good friend and an evangelical Christian who teaches at Asbury Seminary. Um, so I knew a lot about Luke, and I had taught Luke as a seminar. So I thought, okay, I've got six weeks. I can do the commentary on Luke. So that's how I wound up doing it. Um, the idea of having an editor also do a commentary on a book is not desirable. Uh, but in this case, uh, it was necessary. Um, and I was happy I did it because I was happy about the way it turned out. And I got to say what I wanted to say. Um, so that's how that happened. And that sometimes happens with edited volumes is you wind up uh, with people writing who were not the original people who were asked. And sometimes you get a much better product because of it. Um, I will tell, I'll, oh, go ahead, let, me just, let me just tell a complimentary story about the Jewish study Bible. People may have wondered why the commentary on Psalms there is written by Adele Berlin and me. It's precisely the same story. Uh, sadly, Psalms is a little longer than Luke. So it did not take us six weeks, but that was a summer lost half a commentary or gained with half a commentary on the book of Psalms. Excellent. Uh, is there any reason the NRSV was picked uh, for the kind of base uh, translation? Yeah, Oxford had the copyright for it. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, well, I, and it's, yeah, one second, it's a little more than that, AJ. Uh, uh, look, if there was a JPS translation of the New Testament to Jewish Publication Society, translation of the New Testament, we might have used it. But it's a reasonably literal translation. Uh, even though they did not have the last word, and I know from various stories in the new update edition, certainly the scholars do not have the last word. Nevertheless, it is a, a translation in which uh, good scholars from various backgrounds participated. So it's, it's a good basis for a commentary that has annotations. And it is somewhere between literal and paraphrastic, a little closer to the literal. And given that a lot of our concern was really concern for words and phrases, I think it really did work well as 
a good base for that commentary. Right. All, all translators are traders anyway. So what what the what the annotations do, and this is what any good annotated Bible should do, um, is if the annotator has a problem with a particular translation, um, then the annotator gets to say this could also be read as. Um, so now that we're working on the third edition, we'll be using the NRSV New Re New Revised Standard Version updated edition. Uh, and the annotators will check the updated edition to see if there are any new translations that they find uh, problematic or exceptional, and then be able to make comments on those as well. Is there a translation that you guys particularly um, you know, despise? Uh, although it sounds like AJ despises all translations. Um, um, your, your, your to say line. that all translators are traitors does not necessarily mean that I despise. That's an overreading. Um, you have to do some sort of translation. That's that's how we do our work. Um, uh, my preference would be that everybody studied biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek, but since that's not going to happen, ideally what people would do if they want to get a sense of the material, but they don't know the languages, is actually to compare versions. So to look at the NRSVUE, which is a kind of liberal Protestant-y effort, more generally speaking, and to look at the NIV, which tends to be used more by evangelical um, groups, and to look at the New American Bible Revised Edition, which is now coming out in a new translation, which is a, a Catholic Bible that you can find on the website of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, and you start looking at these various translations, then you do your best to figure your way among them and determine which translation you're going to go with. And if there are differences, then you go to major commentaries to figure out where those differences came from. Good, yeah, good work just, always takes a little bit of legwork. Yeah, my, my favorite compare contrast is uh, when the angel appears to Mary in, in Luke. Um, Protestant, there's, I forget the word, but Protestants Catholics have a very different translation in a specific word and when the angel uses it, when the angel announces to Mary. Um, I forget what it is, but there there's clearly a, a theakonos um, version of it, you know, Mother of God temple versus um, kind of maybe a little bit more lay. I'm Mark, excuse me, I slightly interrupted. That, that's okay. And I just add that um, when I teach, I do exactly what AJ does. I drive all these students crazy with three or four column handouts and see what they're able to adduce from them. And of course, my ultimate hidden goal, which I don't always hide, is that they'll be able to study the original language so that they will not need those particular handouts. But for the case of the Hebrew Bible, I would also add, at least for half of the Hebrew Bible that's completed, Everett Fox's translation, which is highly literal and quite poetic and actually is laid out in what he called based on uh, Buber and Rosenzweig breath units, because after all, the Bible was read out loud much longer than it was read silently. And now uh, Robert Alter's translation of the complete Hebrew Bible, although I don't like all the ands that he has in that particular translation, but but in any case, you know, he's a very fine reader of texts and has you know, a very, very well-developed English style. So it's, it's a beautiful translation by somebody who does know Hebrew. So I, I would add those two to the mixture, especially in the case of the Hebrew Bible. And another thing that's good about those translations, I think all the translations that AJ mentioned are what I like calling liturgical translations. I mean, they were written for church, they were written for private devotion or worship. 
both the Shaken Bible and Altar were not. So therefore, certain things that might make you jump if you read them in the Bible in church can be translated in a more straightforward way in these non-liturgical translations. And my favorite example, I don't remember which Bible it is from, in Genesis chapter 22, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, the Hebrew word that is used that's often translated as knife, the Hebrew word is ma'achaletz, which is really a cleaver. And uh, it's a big knife. It's not, a, it's not taking out you know, a little knife or a pocket knife. And uh, the, sometimes you'll see translations, took the knife uh, to, and then the real translation should be to slaughter his son. But again, people will often translate to slay his son because slaughter is really rather awful, even if that is what the Hebrew says. So I think sometimes we're really aware of the fact that in NRSV and other translations, because it is made for a liturgical context, uh, it tones things down. We are not writing for that liturgical context. So we can give a closer sense of what these words evoke. Yeah. When I when I do my my study guides for Abingdon Press, which are designed primarily for, for church, like adult ed programs, um, I give an extremely wooden translation of the Greek, um, which will like if if a noun shows up at the beginning of the sentence, but in English grammar it would be better at the end. I mean, I just give it in sense of how it would have originally hit the reader. And I do that in part to defamiliarize people who are reading this material from the text so that they have to read it again. Because particularly in church context and sometimes in synagogue context, people are so familiar with the English translation that they just kind of, you know, gloss it over, don't really read it carefully. And what I want them to do is pay attention to the different words, pay attention to the verb tenses. Is this happening in the present or is it happening in the past? Pay attention to certain forms of alliteration, you know, where uh, consonants might repeat or vowel sounds might repeat and assonance. Um, so that you can get a sense of the poetry of the version. So on the one hand, we're dealing with audiences who don't know this stuff at all. And on the other hand, we're dealing with audiences for whom it is so familiar that we're encouraging them to take a step back and say, all right, this is what you've always heard. Now listen again. Yeah, that's that's very good. We're um, I go to a Protestant evangelical church and we're going through Genesis right now and they're they tend to kind of cycle in through different different translations, not just the ESV, um, which I jokingly refer to as the evangelical standard version. Um, and yeah, every time it, it just even a slightly different translation, you can catch you know, it's very appreciative of very hard and long work with translators. Um, next question is for Mark. Mark, you write in you write in your essay the New Testament between the Hebrew Bible and rabbinic literature uh, towards the end of the Jewish annotated New Testament that the Hebrew Bible hadn't been officially codified yet at Jesus' time. Uh, there are Jewish writings that the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics put in their Old Testament, slightly synonymous with Hebrew Bible, but not completely, like uh, First and Second Maccabees, Sirach, Tobit, Judith, um, among others. Uh, but those aren't included in today's Hebrew Bible, nor in the Protestant Bibles. What's the kind of overall Jewish view of, of, these, of these texts and documents? Mark, you're on mute. The whole question of canonization is a complicated one. And I really appreciate the fact that you asked that question without using the word canon or canonical. So those books which 
I think are best called deuterocanonical rather than apocryphal, um, are all Jewish books. They're all Second Temple Jewish books. And uh, for one reason or another, they were not included as part of the Hebrew Bible when the Hebrew Bible was canonized, or I prefer to say when the Hebrew Bible became the Hebrew Bible. Now, one of the things that we really, really do not know, and the more you look at the sources, at least I'll speak for myself, the more I look at the sources, and I've done this many times, the more confused I am. We do not know how this text came together as a text with a particular title. By the way, its earliest title is certainly not Hebrew Bible. I mean, early titles of it include Mikra, that which is read, or Kitve HaKodesh, writings of holiness or holy writings. Those are the rabbinic terms. Now, things get a little complicated in terms of the New Testament, and I haven't totally forgotten your question, don't worry, where in some cases in the New Testament, you have uh, the law of the prophets or the law of the prophets in David, and something which scholars debate, rightfully debate, because I don't think it's settled, maybe AJ will tell me better, whether this was a term which was current in the first century for the Jewish Bible or not in which case that should really be translated the law with a capital L, the prophets with a capital P, and then obviously David, although some cases have David, some cases don't. And this goes back to whether at some point the Bible really only had two parts instead of three parts. But, but in any case, uh, I don't know how the Bible became the Bible. And these other works were not included. In some cases, the reasons are pretty clear because they were written in Greek, they were originally written in Greek, and uh, it is pretty likely that the people who are involved in this process, and again, it's people, and I don't think that it's something that happened at one time. So if you go back and you look at old encyclopedia articles, you'll see a theory which was advocated by the 19th century Jewish scholar Heinrich Gretz about a council or a synod in Yavne or Yamnia, which is exactly based on what he knew at that point about how the New Testament was canonized. And he just moved it from notions concerning New Testament canonizations to the canonization of the Tanakh. Uh, that model has really been discredited. So we can, we can know that certain books were not included, such as books of the Maccabees, because they were originally written in Greek. You know, it's quite possible. You know, at some point, we know that the book of Ben Sirah, which was translated from Hebrew to Greek by the author's grandson, might have been better known in Greek than in Hebrew. Uh, and some of the other books, maybe they weren't popular enough. Maybe they were a little outside of the mainstream. It's really, really hard. Or maybe there was a notion that they were written too recently that might also have affected things such as Sirah. So I'll just remind you know, all the listeners, if you want to write a biblical book, please do not date it, uh, 2023. You should really be like the author of Daniel, you know, who dates it about 500 years before it was really written. So some of these books, which are, in, which are deuterocanonical, you know, clearly indicate their late to date. And probably that was also influential and they're not being included. But I'll just say, as a Jew, happy to read them. They're part of Jewish literature in the same way that the New Testament is part of Jewish literature. You could learn about the wide variety of Jewish ideas 
that are circulating. They contain important hints about real Jewish history and so forth. They just don't have, they're just not part of this honorific category. And that's really what it is, honorific category called the Bible. And sorry that this isn't video, so you couldn't see the scare quotes I had around the word, the words, the Bible. It's one of those anything to offer? Yeah, it's one of those questions that that petulant biblical scholars would sometimes put on on an exam, like in what language is the Hebrew Bible written? You know, and then you can't you know, Greek or English or whatnot. So when we start looking at questions of why was not the book of Judith um, or first Maccabees included in the Hebrew Bible, the response is because they're not in Hebrew, um, right? They're in Greek and they were probably never in the running to begin with. Although we know that rabbinic literature, which quotes say Ben Sirach, Ecclesiasticus, I mean, they know the material, but they just did not consider it uh, authoritative in the same way uh, that they considered some of this other material to be authoritative. But we do know at the time of Jesus, for example, uh, that the to use that problematic term canonicity or authoritative concern or holy label. You know, the book of Esther was a little bit on the problematic side because the Hebrew version never mentions the name of God, although the Greek version does. And in one of the weird ways the world works, in the synagogue, we read the book of Esther on the festival of Purim, um, which never mentions the name of God. But in the Catholic uh, and Orthodox and Anglican communions, the Greek book of Esther is part of the canon. So the Christian canon's Esther is a whole lot more Jewish in terms of theology and practice, if that's how we want to define what Jewish means, uh, than the Hebrew version is. But that very distinction raises the question of what do we mean by Jewish literature? Is it literature that's written by Jews? In which case, most of the New Testament would fall under that category. Paul is clearly a Jew. Um, most biblical scholars think that the author of Matthew was Jewish. The author of John was Jewish. You can debate Mark and Luke. Um, the author of Revelation, I'm pretty sure, is Jewish, the Apocalypse of John, and some of that other material perhaps as well, perhaps Hebrews, for example. So is this Jewish literature? Sure, if Jewish literature means something written by Jews. Is it Jewish literature in that it is highly influenced by other forms of Jewish literature and becomes commentary on Jewish literature? And then we, we would be talking about what the church would call the Old Testament or the synagogue, the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. Yeah, it is. Is it part of Jewish history because the interpretation of it has influenced Jewish-Christian relations over the past 2,000 years? Absolutely. So I have no problem looking at the New Testament in general as part of Jewish literature in the same way I would look at the Dead Sea Scrolls as part of Jewish literature or the writings of Josephus or the writings of Philo. And then we need to figure out what exactly we mean when we call it Jewish literature. And then again, I'm using scare quotes to talk about Jewish literature. So, uh, AJ, I can't help but interrupt. Since you brought an analogy earlier from doctoral exams, I think a great doctoral exam question would be, is the New Testament Jewish literature or Jew-ish, J-E-W hyphen I-S-H literature? You know, please discuss in 5,000 words. That, that really is the issue, that it is incredibly complicated to define what Jewish meant then, as it sometimes is incredibly complicated to define what Jewish means now. Different people are going to have very different definitions. And there certainly are people both then and now who consider themselves to be Jewish, 
whom others would not consider to be Jewish. So this is an incredibly complicated issue. Very complicated. We'll get into just different type of complex canonicity. Uh, AJ, is there a book you think maybe should have been included in the New Testament canon, like the Epistle of Barnabas or Shepherd of Hermas or First Clement? I, I specifically call those out because they are all three of those books are actually found in complete codices of, of the Bible, specifically Codex, but it's uh, Synacticus and Codex Vaticantus, I think I'm saying that correctly. Sinaiticus um, and Vaticanus. There you go. Thank you. Uh, so no, um, I think the Epistle of Barnabas is a nasty supersessionist volume. I think First Clement is really boring. I'm sorry for anybody who works on First Clement, but it's it's not the most, it's like First Corinthians with all the juicy stuff left out. Um, and some other stuff added in. And Shepherd of Hermas, I think, is fascinating, but I'm not sure what you would do with it liturgically. And I think it's relatively late. Um, so your question is basically a hypothetical question or an alternative history question. You know, what if? It's not there. Um, so even if it were, right, it, it's simply not there. And my interest is, my own academic interest, is in what is in the canon and how do people who hold that canon to be sacred deal with it. Um, you can ask similar questions about, say, the so-called Gnostic Gospels. Gnostic is another one of those conflicted terms. Like, should we include Gospel of Thomas, which has some probably original Jesus material in it? Uh, or should we include the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which is relatively early, which gives us another version of the Our Father prayer. It seems to be dependent on Matthew, but it's still quite early. And the answer is, but it wasn't included. So whether it should have been or not, I mean, the question doesn't get us anywhere, I, I don't think, because it wasn't. Uh, should Christians be aware of this material because it's part of Christian history? Well, that would be nice in the same way that Jews might want to be aware of the Dead Sea Scrolls or the writing of Josephus or the writing of writings of Philo or the New Testament. But that's not for religious concerns or liturgical concerns or theological arguments as much as it is for understanding our own history and what the different options are. And then it shows us that whatever we have determined to be canonical, scare quotes again, um, is a matter of choice. Some texts did not make the canonical cut and some texts were never in the running to begin with. Yeah, I do. I I, I will broadly agree. First Clement is on the boring side, although I do think Shepherd of Hermas, I haven't read Epistle of Barnabas, but I think Shepherd of Hermas is a, is a beautiful, dark, but but very beautiful book. And um, I think, thank you, thank you for that that answer. Um, Mark, what do you think is the most uh, common misconception among Jews? And I, you know, not broadly and not negatively or, or anything like that, just, what, or maybe more specifically, what have you found are common misconceptions among um among Jewish people about the New Testament, uh, just anecdotes that you've picked up over the years. Yeah, I think the most common misconception is that the New Testament is full of hatred toward Jews. And without any question, you can cherry pick the New Testament and you could come out with a cup, a handful, a couple of handfuls of really, really problematic statements. You know, the blood cry at the end of Matthew, uh, children of the devil, of the devil. Um, I think some of Hebrews is really uh, is unusually supersessionist and quite problematic. But that is a small part of what the New Testament is. And uh, the misconception is that the New Testament is full of hatred toward Jews. 
I think it is a very common one. And I think also a strong misconception about the New Testament being just very, very different than other Jewish literature. So here, of course, it depends on which part of the New Testament you're talking about. But I think I first encountered Matthew when I was either in the end of elementary school or the beginning of high school. And I went to a traditional Jewish school where I had studied a fair amount of Talmud. And it's like I'm, I'm reading Matthew and I'm like saying to myself, oh, my God. I mean, the arguments that are found and the way in which the biblical text is employed in this book is very is something that I'm very comfortable with. So I think it's really important for Jews, it's really important for everyone, but including Jews, to read the New Testament and to see what it to see what it actually says, to understand its style, and to make a broad judgment about it, rather than to make a judgment about the entire corpus on the basis of a few texts, which are problematic, some of them even highly problematic, but it is unfair to judge the entire corpus by those texts. And to add to that, um, it's also unfair to judge contemporary Christians on the basis of what those texts said, because there's the text and then how that text has been interpreted over the past 2000 years. In the same way, you simply can't do like a raw reading of Leviticus or a raw reading of Judges and say, well, that's what Jews think. Um, you have to look at the commentaries over time and then talk to contemporary Jews to figure out the various um, interpretations that the Jewish community and individual Jews have brought to these texts. But that's yeah, another that's... for us to be able to read together. So if the Jew reads something in Hebrews or something in Revelation or something in Paul and goes, wait a minute, do you really think that? Um, it's helpful for the Christian to take a step back and say, well, here's how I understand this text. Or in a number of cases that, that I've experienced when I mention this to, say, Christian students, their response is, well, I never noticed that. But now that you mention it, that's a huge problem. Um, so one of the things that we can do and have done with the Jewish Annotated New Testament um, is to call to mind some of the more problematic passages that Christians have simply skipped over um, in, in the same way that uh, people who are in the majority sometimes skip over some of the hateful things they say about minority groups because they haven't realized it's hateful. It's simply part of the language, part of the culture. That kind of dovetails into our next question, actually, for, for you, AJ. Um, what what passages do you think are, are most responsible for influencing um, you know, the term anti-Semitism or in my research for this episode, um, sometimes anti-Judaism versus anti-Semitism is used for New Testament passages, um, either word, uh, and, and what are, are, do you think those passages are correctly um, interpreted or not? Um, Mark's already mentioned a few of them. There's Matthew 27, 25, where Matthew depicts the all the people, the Greek is pasolaos, all the people, saying uh, about Jesus, when Pilate says, what should I do with this fellow? Um, his blood be on us and on our children. And that's where you get this idea of perpetual blood guilt going down through the centuries, so that all Jews at all times are responsible for the death of Jesus. Um, that was something that Vatican II attempted to end with their document from October 1965, Nostra Aetate. And a number of Protestant churches have picked up on that. But I'm still hearing that, you know, in terms of Jews as Christ killers. That's still alive and well. Um you Jews are children of the devil, which is John 8, 44, which Mark already mentioned. 
First uh, Thessalonians chapter two about the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and oppose all people. The book of Revelation with its synagogue of Satan. Um, uh, the use of the Jews in the Gospel of John about 70 times, usually in quite a, a negative, sometimes neutral, but usually in quite a negative manner. And, but it's not just cherry-picking verses. It's the entire impression that you can get from reading a book. So um, if the only way uh, to appropriately read the scriptures of Israel is through the lens of the Christ, then Paul in, in 2 Corinthians is like Jews read with a veil over their eyes. And the only way you can read correctly is if you read it through the lens of Christ. So even if you're not dealing with specific verses, you can read the entire text and get this kind of subliminal message all the way through. Mm, uh, these Jews who are not signing on to the Messianic problem, they are they are the, the, the Messianic program. They are themselves a problem. Um, and what they're doing is incorrect. Uh, so I, I think the text needs to be read um, with annotations like the ones that we provide in, in, in our volume to say, gentle reader, you may read this text and come out being an anti-Semite, but you don't have to. Here are some other ways of understanding how these, these particular verses may have functioned. Here are some theological or pastoral or ethical resources to help you better uh, understand these texts uh, and take seriously Paul's concern uh, that the covenant with the Jews remains. Um, and it's never abrogated. And although Jews may not be part of the program now, uh, at least for Paul, there's, there's a fix-in, which Paul calls a mystery, uh, that at some point they're going to get it. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, if my Christian brothers and sisters want to say, gee, AJ, at the end of time, you'll come to worship Jesus, that's fine, because we're not there yet. Um, so let's stop bearing false witness against Jews and Judaism in the interim. Yeah, can I just, let me just add to that to say, by temperament, I think both AJ and I are historians of religion, and we see how things change over time. And I often felt like, at least I was walking a very, very fine line where on the one hand, let's take uh, the verses, the verse from Matthew that was written in a particular historical context. And the historical context can help explain why such a sentiment could be voiced then and was meant for then. But on the other hand, uh, I think we were also incredibly aware of how hurtful those verses were and have been over time. So even when explaining them historically, we still wanted to caution all sorts of readers to make sure that that those particular notions are not perpetuated. I think both of your sentiments kind of dovetail. I'm going to jump a few questions ahead. Um, but there, there's actually been seemingly quite a movement over the past half century or even last 150 years, certainly since the Victorian era, um, to recontextualize Jesus as Jewish from traditional Catholics to secular historians. Um, where do the Jewish people fit into that paradigm? I guess asked another way, does a Jewish Jesus, does a Jewish Jesus, excuse me, um, mean that he's more palatable to the Jewish community or that they're just too deep of wounds over the past 1500 years? Um, yeah, well, I want to back point. the question up just a little bit, because yeah, what I typically hear from pastors um, and priests in sermons is, of course, Jesus was Jewish, but, and there's always this, but he's Jewish, but he's radical over here, or he's distinct over here. So even though the, yeah, we know he's Jewish is out there, which is that's progress. 
Um, because there's always this but, um, which attempts to distinguish Jesus from anything else that constitutes Judaism, um, calling Jesus Jewish in a number of settings is meaningless. Um, it's it's virtue signaling. It's a nod to history. And then people go, pastors and priests go on and say what they were going to say anyway. Um, in terms of making Jesus more palatable to Jews, palatable in what sense? Um, it's it's not like we're writing the Jewish annotated New Testament to get everybody to go out and get baptized. That's not our agenda. What we're trying to do, and here to repeat what Mark said about our being historians, um, is to say Jesus is part of Jewish history because he was in fact Jewish, and it's not Jewish, but um, he's a first century Jew who sounds like other first century Jews, um, uh, who teaches like other first century Jews, who had disciples like other first century Jews, who thought the end of the world was about to break in big time like other first century Jews did. And he had some distinct ways of speaking like other first century Jews did. That's part of Jewish history. And to tell yeah, I think. Out by palatable, I mean, uh, Mark alluded that um, all the New Testament might be Jew-hating, or uh, that's not exactly what he said, but I'm paraphrasing. And so maybe being more palatable means you're more open to being to the Jewish community or Jews that you just know in general, being like, oh, maybe I can read the New Testament and, and finding new things because the, there is more, maybe not direct, as you said, um, emphasis on Jews. Yeah, but that's not the same thing as making Jesus more palatable because the New <laughs> Testament yeah. isn't Jesus, I mean, the historical Jesus because we don't have anything written by Jesus. Um, the New Testament is people's reflections on him from, from the, the viewpoint of faith. Um, does that make him more palatable to Jews? Well, Jews need to know what the New Testament says um, and whether they find themselves resonating with Jesus as Mark did when he looked at how Jesus argues in the Gospel of Matthew and says, boy, that looks rabbinic, because it does, um, or whether they find him completely alien as they might find some of the Dead Sea Scrolls completely alien or Philo completely alien, that would depend upon the individual Jew. Yeah, and I would say that one of at least my goals in co-editing the Jewish Annotated New Testament, I think the same is true for AJ. I would not necessarily use the word palatable, but I certainly wanted more Jews to read the New Testament. I think we both think that this is important for a wide variety of reasons. And in terms of your question, uh, one of the one of the sections of the essays, and we have lots of essays in the back, but one of the sections that I feel a special kinship to is the section called Responses to the New Testaments. And these are Jewish responses to the New Testaments. And we will add to those in the third edition. And when you go, when you read them, you, you begin to see that at the end of the 19th century, and the beginning of the 20th century uh, until the Second World War, among some people, there really was, among some Jewish authors and uh, Jewish painters, Chagall was certainly one of them, there was a great deal of sympathy toward Jesus. And uh, the Second World War, the Holocaust changed a lot of that. And uh, I'm certainly not suggesting that we forget about what befell European Jewry and North African Jewry in those years, but that it, that is starting to recede. And I think that is also making it a little easier for Jews to look at the New Testament in a little more sympathetic and neutral way, which I think would have been very, very difficult in the 1950s or even the 1960s. And 
one of the things that AJ and I thought about a lot in, in the first edition, and we talk about theoretically, is would it have been possible to put together the Jewish annotated New Testament, let's say in 1980? And I think we both agree that it would not have been, because at that point, from a, the perspective of Jewish scholars who had enough knowledge and care of the New Testament, you can write about this material in a dispassionate and scholarly way, those scholars simply did not exist. Well, now they do. And now what we're trying to do is to really encourage the Jewish laity to become much more aware of what this book, which is so fundamental to American religion, so fundamental to Western society, uh, to encourage them to read it and to understand it. Yeah, if if we want if we want Christians to respect us, um, which means knowing a little bit more about Judaism than the you know annual Hanukkah episode in the sitcom or a production of Fiddler on the Roof, something about the state of Israel and the Holocaust, the Shoah, um, then I think we Jews owe Christians the same courtesy. Um, and that means learning uh, just as Christians need to know about the diversity of Jewish belief and practice and how Judaism has changed over time. Um, I I think we Jews owe Christians the same courtesy in that sense, which means know, knowing a little bit more about Christianity than the annual sitcom Christmas episode um, uh, and the particular uh, you know white supremacist Christian nationalists who get up and say we need to be a Christian country, which means whatever it is where Jews and Muslims and Hindus don't count. Um, and we read the New Testament, and then we talk to Christians about how they interpret it. Um, yeah, I, in uh, this was framed as a question, but you guys have kind of already answered it woven through here. I, I did a pericope study of Mark with a secular Jewish friend of mine, and um, kind of to your point, AJ, she thought John the Baptist was the writer of the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. So, um, and for the for and there's there were back and forth that during that entire pericope study of of like, oh wow, like she taught me stuff about um Passover that I didn't know and all sorts of stuff so that was a really well, good that's, like that's actually um there have been biblical scholars who have suggested that John the Baptist is the authority behind the gospel of John hmm. um so the, the idea is not quite as wacky um as you might think it is uh the gospel of John never says hi I'm John I'm writing this text right who are possible candidates um, one other thing that's worth mentioning that we have done and, and will will enhance in the third edition is we now know a little bit more uh, about who the Pharisees were. And this is based on a big conference that was held in Rome in 2019, um, where we looked at how the Pharisees are portrayed in the Gospels. Uh, Paul's the only Pharisee from whom we have written records, which is kind of weird. Um, how the Pharisees show up in Josephus, what the connection between the Pharisees and rabbinic literature is. Um, and that's a major part, part of recovering Jewish history, because the Pharisees and the rabbis do have some connections. And the New Testament is a splendid source for understanding what, what concerns Pharisees may have had. Also, how they apparently show up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we're not just looking at Jesus in the context of Jewish history. We're looking at what do we know about Pharisees? What do we know about apocalyptic movements? Uh, what do we know about gender roles in women's lives and so on? Well, thank you. I know um, uh, both have to go shortly. Uh, just to plug, I know uh said many, many times, third edition of Jewish Annotated New Testament comes out. I guess you're working on it. Is there a set date for that um, or just kind of doing a little bit of update? Do you know when that might be coming out or is that more of a publisher question? It should be out in two or three years. Okay. Um, and I know but you guys- Meanwhile, by all means, 
take a look at the second edition. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I'll also put a link in the show notes. You guys uh, both co-authored the book, uh, The Bible With and Without Jesus. We'll put show notes in that. Um, otherwise, is there uh, any projects you're both currently separately working on uh, that you'd like to plug before, before we all have to go? I have a book coming out from Har with Harper next August called Something Like Jesus for Everyone. Um, which attempts, again, to give some alternative translations to defamiliarize and then try to set not only Jesus, but stories about him in their historical context. The volume does not ask, what would Jesus do? Because I think that's kind of a silly question. I mean, Jesus doesn't live in a participatory democracy. Um, but how do these stories about Jesus help us think our way through questions about economics or immigration or gender roles or politics or family values and so on? Because um, I think the stories actually speak to contemporary concerns. If we can locate them appropriately in their own historical context, then we can talk about what that shift is. Uh, and I just published this past August a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Which I would have loved uh, to use, but I look forward to buying that as well and seeing uh, what, what extra material I can gain. I did use the Jewish Antiquity Testament um, for some of my study with friends. That was very, very good material. And in terms of what I'm working on, AJ had mentioned that the new Revised Standard Version has updated itself. You have the updated edition, and therefore all sorts of very important edited books which use the unupdated edition need to be replaced. So that includes the new Oxford Annotated Bible. So I'm toward the end of working as one of the associate editors revising that. And it's really going to be very, very different than all the previous editions. It's going to have much more on history of interpretation, because that has become a major significant field within mainstream biblical scholarship. And I'm engaged in a very large, long-term scholarly project with the colleague of Israel, which in some ways also does deal with Jewish-Christian relations, because it is on the Jewish reception of critical biblical scholarship and critical biblical scholarship, well, really in some ways first arose in the Catholic world, but then became very developed in the Protestant world. So this is really in many ways a study of how Jewish approaches to the Bible were informed by Christian approaches to the Bible. But that's several years off for publication. Well, thank you both uh, so much for joining me today and look forward to continuing to by so many books that I will read in retirement because um, I'm just so <laughs> far behind in my reading. I have a bookshelf of ever-growing books that I need to read. Um, thank you so much both for joining me and, and for your work and hope you have a great uh, fall weekend. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Our album art was done by my wife, and our theme music was composed by TJ Stokes.